It's four o'clock and it's welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and six, six tonight. And a very warm welcome to the final Tuesday Home Time for me for 2020. It's been a very different year for everybody and for those of us here at 3CR, a difficult but we believe a very successful year of broadcasting, mainly from homes, in makeshift studios and with tremendous assistance from staff and technicians. So for the last program, Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees reminds Morrison about hypocrisy. Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network looks back over the year and the issues which face us in the near future. Dr Tim Anderson talking about the issues that he's been writing and talking about during 2020. And finally, two tributes to Tony Flood, a person who described him said, a true urban landscape champion. The war of words between China and Australia continues, with the Australian Prime Minister condemning in the strongest terms China's attack on Australian war crimes accusations relating to Australia's support for the US in Afghanistan. And this is in the context of, over recent times, the Australian government having not held back on condemning China for its human rights record. Stuart Rees, OIM, Professor Emeritus at University of Sydney, recipient of the Jerusalem Peace Prize, author of a new book, Cruelty or Humanity, published by Bristol Policy Press, a human rights activist, a poet, a novelist, founder of the Sydney Peace Prize, well qualified to address the issue of human rights. And he has done that recently in an article in Pearls and Irritations titled Morrison's Selective Attitude to Human Rights, showing hypocrisy is live and well, silent about the abuses of friends, but condemning of those perpetrated by so-called enemies. I spoke with Stuart on Friday and asked him where he'd like to begin with such a wide topic. Well, I think the main issue is that if you're going to be a supporter of human rights, you have to be consistent. If something is called universal, you can't pick and choose. You either have to be committed or not. You can't say that I love all my children, but some of them I don't love very much at all. That would be very odd. That's what Morrison and co. do. I mean, the only consistency, as I've said, is that... um, they always turn a blind eye to whatever Israel, uh, the Israeli government does. It's clear that they under, they think they're under some instructions from the United States and Israel never to offend Israel, whatever brutalities it um, indulges in. So that's the only obvious consistency. Now we've suddenly decided that to counter China, we're going to be a bosom friend of India, as I've said, without any reference to uh, the constant abuse of human rights in in India. And then we've not allowed uh, United Nations investigators to look at uh, what goes on on Manus Island and Nauru. We we happily send some poor unfortunates to um, Cambodia, one of the most authoritarian regimes in the world. And we keep that Sri Lankan family on Christmas Island for uh, thousands of days. The cruelty is abominable, 
And in the same breath, we're told that the Prime Minister is some kind of Christian. So, you know, the inconsistencies are bad. You can't swallow them. It's, it's difficult to read about them. And you only have to look at the figures of the incarceration of the Indigenous people of Australia. Absolutely. I mean, I should have started almost with the appalling treatment of the, the native peoples of Australia. That um, I mean, I can remember the early days of the of the Royal Commission into uh, Indigenous deaths in custody. Nothing's changed. The idea that I once put to Labour leaders that the whole of domestic and foreign policy should be based around commitment to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, is, we're, we're far removed from that. We barely, barely talk about that. The maltreatment of indigenous people is a constant blot on, um, uh, on our record. I mean, look, Australia committed genocide against um, Indigenous people, where, where I mean, Rudd, to his credit, made that apology to the to the stolen generations. But um, then, only a year or so ago, Turnbull rejected almost immediately the Uluru statement, which was about essentially it was about peace at our time. It was a it was an olive branch being offered by the indigenous people. We should have been, the, the white dominant nation people should have been offering it to, to the First Nations people. And the fact that we engage in every war that the Americans say, I think you should, you must. And we've, we've heard in recent weeks about what's happened in Afghanistan, but many people believe that it's only the tip of the iceberg and that this sort of thing may be not quite the same has been going on for many, many years in different fields of war. Absolutely. And then Mr Christopher Pine, when he was Defence Minister, the last thing he hoped for before he resigned from Parliament was to say that he wanted Australia to dramatically move up the league table of nations who sold, sold arms around the world. He wanted us to go from 20th of the arms fellows to pretend. And there's a massive commitment to violence in the Australian culture, particularly, I mean, exhibited mostly by men. You can only, you see the, uh, the, the pandemic of uh, domestic violence running parallel to the COVID-19 outbreak. You know that that's somehow linked, linked to our fascination with going to war for no reason. And um, I think your observation that um, the inquiry into what went on in Afghanistan is only the tip of the iceberg is correct. And then we have the pushback, don't we, where, you know, no, this couldn't have happened. It's been exaggerated. Our soldiers wouldn't do things like that. Yes. I mean, we're afraid there's, there's almost an imitation of the absurd claims that you always receive across America, that America is exception, an exceptional country, uh, therefore, it's almost beyond criticism, irrespective of what it does. And so there's a sort of imitation of that uh, behaviour in, in Australia. I'm sure the, the poisonous Murdoch media is, is in the vanguard of those uh, claims. Uh, there's no humility. There's no capacity for 
or too little capacity for national self-reflection. It's like, well, you know, we're actually we're actually in, in post-COVID societies going to be committed to non-violence, and we're going to outlaw militarism. And of course, to me, civil liberties is also the fact that so many workers now are not being paid properly, they haven't got a secure job. And you've only got to look at the COVID-19, the nursing homes and, and the, um, the hotels to see that the workers there are working two or three jobs and then being blamed for spreading a disease. Surely the right, right to have a, sure. have a proper wage and a, somewhere to live is a basic human yes, right. Yes, I mean, the, absolutely. I mean, the commitment to human rights is a domestic issue as well as a foreign policy one. It's about the way I treat you, the way you treat me. And we somehow discovered during the COVID-19 crisis that the, the key people in society were, the, were these frontline workers who were paid very little, not highly regarded, part of a gig economy. And now, retrospectively, we've discovered that life can't go on without them. And yet, as you say, to continue the humiliation and indifference, uh, many of them are disqualified for having any income at all. I mean, let's pay the, the staff of care homes at least as much as... Um, well, no, let's say one-tenth of what leading lawyers and, and corporate leaders expect to receive for doing work that is nowhere near as life-enhancing and crucial as what people do in care homes. And surely a big issue of human rights is Morrison's denial of doing anything or hardly anything against climate change. John, that's... You know, I don't think in the way we ought to have started this discussion with that. I mean, one aspect of cruelty, which I've written about at some length in, in the book, Cruelty or Humanity, is about cruelty to planet Earth. It's about violence, which runs parallel to violence to other people and violence to animals. If you pollute the oceans and destroy the rivers and, um, and the ice caps, and the Great Barrier Reef, and you cut down as many trees as possible, and you destroy the habitat of animals. That's appalling cruelty to the environment. And that cruelty is maintained in Morrison's wretched gas-led recovery. He's the prisoner, apparently, of the fossil fuel industry and interests. And so this cruelty to planet Earth and therefore the cruelty to the next generation continues. What hope do you have for the Labour Party in these issues you've been talking about? Well, I'd like to find a vaccine marked courage and give it to all the members of the ALP. There are some wonderful gutsy exceptions, but the, I don't know what it is, the culture of parties and the culture of these of this stupid arrangement of so-called factions doesn't allow too much freedom of discussion and speaking. And I wonder if any, how many of the federal Labour politicians will ever read my book, which is saying to them, look, here's an alternative for post-COVID societies. You know, the Labour Party is incredibly disappointing. 
They have to express a vision about a future that is totally different from the conditions and the way of living and the way of running the economy which led to COVID-19. One individual that you haven't yet touched on is a person languishing in a maximum security jail in London. Correct, correct. Yes. Look, we should be enormously grateful to Julian Assange. He should be treated as an Australian hero. Instead, the Australian government, both parties, have behaved like abject cowards on this issue. It started with uh, Julia Gillard pronouncing that he'd committed a, a crime, and, a, and if you recall, she had to be told by the Australian Federal Police, no, madam, you are completely wrong. But the, the, the cowardice of the major Australian political parties, there's some, pretty, some wonderful exceptions, led mostly by independent Andrew Wilkie from Tasmania. The cowardice is, is just amazing. This guy, the evidence is, is overwhelming that, he, that his, his revelations harmed no one. There was a wonderful, a brilliant one-hour analysis of this issue of the, of the nature of, of, of WikiLeaks and the contributions of WikiLeaks to, um, to public journalism and to understanding uh, on uh, Late Night Live, uh, I think it was yesterday evening. Philip Adams, to his enormous credit, gave it a one-hour analysis. But the, the government and the politicians uh, are nowhere to be seen or heard. And the cruelty continues by keeping this, by, by persecuting Julian in jail. I mean, most of the people who've got any idea about what's going on would say that there are two major worldwide Australian contributors to journalism and the public understanding. One has been enormously evil and the other one has been enormously positive. The two worldwide figures, who are both Australian, are respectively Rupert Murdoch and Julian Assange. But in terms of um, truth-telling, they are at totally different ends of a continuum. Stuart, this is the last time we'll be speaking this year. How would you assess 2020? The good, the bad, and I suppose the ugly... Well, well, dear Jan, that's obviously one of your, uh, you know, you keep your most difficult question to last, never mind. It's obviously been dominated by Trumpism before we knew about COVID-19. Trumpism is about bullying, it's about isolationism, it's about um, a dangerous nationalism. It's, it's about cruelty, it's about who cares about international treaties, who cares about trust. Who cares about human rights? So that that theme has soured 2020 from certainly Western eyes, and it continues with with Trump's refusal to concede that he lost the election. The second feature, of course, has been COVID-19, this massive, devastating um, pandemic virus, and only countries in Southeast Asia. New Zealand and Australia, who, whose understanding of freedom was that a lockdown and respecting the interests of your neighbour was entirely justified. They're the, that's, those are the reasons why we've managed to suppress 
COVID-19 here. In America, there's been an absurd misunderstanding of what freedom is about. They think they still seem to think that freedom is do what you like. That's not my understanding of freedom. And, and they want the, the terrible consequences. Now, the other, the third trend across the world is the continued rise of populist governments, the relative non-action by governments like Australia to protect planet Earth. Uh, because of the, the so-called independence, we have thrown millions and millions of refugees under the bus that said they, are, they don't really fit into this model about nationalism. Those are the three trends. The appalling Trumpism, the devastation of the um, uh, caused by the virus, the absurd nationalism around the world, which is an erosion of democracy. And you can see it in um, what's happened to the courageous people of Hong Kong. You can see it even happening on the streets of Bangkok and across, across Thailand. And I think those, those three trends and the death toll that's arisen from them are enough to um, make us hope that we have a better Christmas. Do you see it as a creeping fascism that we're looking at around the world? Well, yes, of course, because fascism means you don't have to think very much. You just have to obey what the strong man tells you to do. Uh, fascism is, is, is about an escape from freedom, the escape from the freedom and the responsibility to think for yourself. You just put, you know, just get the latest absurd tattoo, bang your uh, drums, or in America, in the case of America, go and buy your next Kalashnikov, and parade in the streets, or uh, and, uh, and and violently oppose anybody who criticizes that. Now, now the fascism is is very dangerous. You've got it obviously in Poland, in Hungary, in Turkey. The cruel dictatorship of Saudi Arabia is obviously a form of fascism. Uh, and, and usually the victims, let's make this point clear, the victims mostly are, uh, or disproportionately, are women. The continual cruelty to women is also an issue that's been very apparent throughout um, 2020. Are you also concerned with the new laws, the new powers for ASIO, the new defence bill to call out the ADF and to bring in foreign police and troops in unidentified oh, emergencies? Yeah, yeah absolutely. If, 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 I mean, the very opposite of democracy is to constantly have this absurd secrecy. You know, you have to see what happened to the Labour MP shock at Osamaya when obviously um, the AFP, AVO, Dutton and Co. were all tied up in this um, appalling piece of persecution and the state Labour Party behaved like a bunch of cowards and complied with it. And this, with the use of these foreign interference laws and now, and now um, uh, Prime Minister Morrison beating his chest and trying to stop uh, the previous autonomy of universities and NGOs and local councils who wanted to make their own arrangements with, with, with other countries. 
presumably a local council wants to become a friend of a city in another part of the world, that's going to be snuffed out, or you have to, you have to go cap in hand to Canberra to seek permission. I thought the, the advocacy of human rights and the promotion of democracy was to do away with, with the kind of secrecy that characterized so many regimes in the decades after the Second World War. You'd better give a plug for your book. I mean, I just heard from broadcasters in the United States that they want to talk about the book across America. So um, here, here is a book that is written for the general public. It's not written just, just for, for, for an academic audience. And it really is about what I've called in the last chapter a language for humanity. If we do not have a language in which to envision what a socially just and creative future will look like, it's very difficult to, um, to know what to do. If we don't speak and learn and be enthusiastic about that language for humanity, then we will, quote, return to normal, unquote. And that would be monumentally stupid because the normal that's being spoken about was, is the brings us to the reference to COVID-19, to fascism, to the erosion of democracy that we have just talked about. So I'm hoping that um, cruelty or humanity will enable us to preserve democracy. And the publisher is? The enthusiastic about the only thing. The publisher is Policy Press out of Bristol, in the UK. Okay, I'll talk to you again next year. Thank you so very much, Dan. It's lovely to talk to you. And you, you I hope I can um, get down to a rejuvenated Melbourne early in the new year. Lovely. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, bye-bye. Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Radical Australia needs you. I need you. This is Joseph Toscano from Radical Australia. We are looking for guests for the rest of 2020 and for 2021. If you have a story to tell, Radical Australia is the program for you. Ring me on 0439-395-489 if you'd like to be interviewed on Radical Australia during December 2020 and during 2021. Your story is important to everyone listening to Radical Australia. Yesterday I spoke with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network and started with the new so-called food, fake food, and remember that the only imitation animal fish dishes were in Buddhist Asian restaurants who fashioned mainly tofu to look and taste like animal flesh. Well, there are a number of different methods. In fact, that remains one of them. There's a new company which has just opened a plant in North Sydney, in fact, sausages and meatballs uh, through Australian supermarkets under the um, brand Meat, M-E-E-T. It was uh, originally a collaboration with CSIRO about 15 years ago and now it got commercial. 
they're using uh, soy and wheat to make their fake meats. It'll be interesting to see how they go, but globally there's a huge explosion of um, these kinds of both vegetarian options uh, of processed foods and also, of course, now there's the lab-grown or cultured meats which are starting to be developed by people like Impossible Foods and others uh, internationally. And how are they doing it? Well, they take the cells, the muscle cells from various animals, put them in bioreactors in factories, feed those muscle cells with a broth of some kind of nutrients, and in turn, this is claimed to produce meat. Singapore has, is the first country just to approve the lab-grown chicken nuggets, it's going to be, initially, They've got great concerns as a city-state with no great agricultural lands. They're um, concerned about food security for the future and are going to try out these uh, new cultured chicken nuggets on their population to see how they like them and whether they go down well. Of course, there are other strands as well. Um, there's a, a Fasans application at the moment that Fasans Food Stands Australia New Zealand are considering for soy hemoglobin, which is a, a substance which is going to be included into soy and wheat-based products to make them appear much more like uh, meat, to give that um, bleeding sort of texture that uh, people are accustomed to when they have a hamburger or a sausage or some other processed food product. I, I think the thing to say about all this really is that uh, we need to recall that from a nutritional point of view, we can probably still dump all of these into the category of junk foods. It'll be a shame, I think, if they become a substantial part of the global uh, or indeed the Australian diet. Well, it's not encouraging people to change to a plant-based diet, is it? No, not at all. Uh, in fact, um, pretending that it's meat, I don't quite see why people need to um, be, I don't know, to, to be disinformed, really, or given a PR that, uh, you know, something is just like meat. I mean, why bother? Fresh fruits and veggies and whole grains are a, are a great diet as well. And I think it would be much better if the companies and governments were moving people in the direction of having those five serves of fresh fruits and veggies that are recommended uh, as a healthful diet. They've got all the nutritional value, the vitamins, the minerals, all the uh, trace elements that... Uh, I needed to keep one healthy to do well in life. So I, I think the processed junk foods ought to be kept off the dinner table if possible. You know, people will say, well, yes, price may be an issue. But I think when you consider that um, this is health that we're talking about, not just what you put down your face so that you can um, go to work or whatever it is every day, that you also want to be healthy from what you eat that uh, the fresh fruit and vegetable recipe and the whole food, whole grains are the way to go. Well, the companies that are pushing these fake foods, do they put on the label how much nutrition and all those, ex those other things that other products have to have so that people actually know whether they're getting a balanced food or not? Oh, they would, yes. They'd have to still say that, put that... Um, table on the back that says how much uh, calories there are, how much energy, how much this, that, and the next thing. But really, I think 
we can say that processed foods are generally inferior to fresh foods. And I hope that remains true because, of course, at the moment, as we talked about last time we were, we were speaking, there's an application from the Queensland Government into Food Standards Australia as well to irradiate all fresh fruits and vegetables. They're applying for irradiation, the use of ionising radiation, which is a very high dose of energy, up to an, an amount equivalent to 10 million X-rays at one time being applied to fresh fruits and veggies really casts rather a cloud over those um, core staples that we rely on as well, which is a big shame, I think, and we're encouraging people to write in, of course, to say, hang on a minute, we want these foods, the integrity of these foods, to be maintained, their nutritional value. And, of course, irradiation can also bring radiolytic products, residues, into the food as well. There are a number of different ways of managing fruit fly, which is the reason that the Queensland government claims that it is uh, applying to do irradiation on all fresh fruits and veggies. But there are plenty of other methods as well, including right from the beginning of the production cycle where you actually use bagging or pheromone strips or other treatments in the field to exclude fruit fly and you don't leave it till later on after you've picked the fruit or the vegetables and then say, oh, we've got a fruit fly problem. We'd better now dip them in toxic chemicals or um, methyl bromide or um, expose them to radiation. The organic industry adopts those early interventions, those preventative measures, and delivers its fruit and veggies in top condition to the market by managing the fruit fly problem. Of course, in a way, managing fruit fly is a pretext because um, irradiating food can also extend its health, uh, its shelf life considerably. So industry has an interest in irradiation because it can take longer to get its fruits and vegetables to the marketplace, still looking edible, but um, they can be quite old by the time they reach you. And that's not a good thing from a health and nutrition point of view as well. They, of course, also, by being irradiated, in a sense, denature or sterilize the food as they would any um, microorganism that happened to be present as well, which is another reason that uh, irradiation is uh, recommended in some cases where you know bad management has caused infestation and you want to then clean up the food uh, by zapping it, by pre-cooking it using irradiation as a, as a technique. Indeed, here in Melbourne, Steritech, which is the company, the nuclear radiation company involved, is actually, with state government money, building an irradiation plant at um, the Epping Wholesale Fruit and Veggie Markets. We're not sure whether that is complete and up and running yet, but if not, it, it soon will be, particularly if uh, Fasans gives, gives this approval for all fruits and veggies to be irradiated. We got an extension so if people still want to make a submission on that, uh, they have till the Christmas Eve, 24th of uh, December, to put in a submission to Food Stands Australia New Zealand, and they can look on the Genetics uh, Facebook page to pick up the information about doing that. This irradiating food issue has been around for a long time. Where did it come from? Oh, well, it originated in the um, space race in the 1950s and 60s, they wanted to irradiate food so that it would be sterile 
for uh, people in space and it moved on from there, you know. It's a bit like the other nuclear industries, you know, originally was the, the atomic bomb and then we were told, oh, now there are atoms for peace, whether it be a nuclear power reactor or food irradiation or indeed irradiating hospital equipment, which is a good use of the irradiation process. You get your hospital equipment absolutely squeaky clean. Well, that's important. But I think when you apply that energy to um, knocking your fresh fruits and vegetables about, uh, we have to take a pretty dim view of that and argue the point very strenuously. So there have been applications to food stamps Australia New Zealand since the early 1990s and gradually things like herbs and spices and tea were approved and then in 2016, 26 tropical fruits and vegetables were also approved for irradiation despite a huge public groundswell of opposition and we're in the same boat now. It's just that the Queensland government, which was the applicant then and is the applicant now, wants to take the gloves off altogether and say, oh, okay, the industry can irradiate whatever it likes. This is really just a step too far, I think, that um, we're going to put into the hands of uh, the industry a process which um, will need to be monitored. Uh, there will need to be enforcement and compliance and accountability. I think that the state governments haven't shown themselves to be very responsible in this. For example, the Victorian state government has got a page on its website extolling the virtues of irradiating foods. I just think that we need to keep this under very, very strict controls. For instance, different fruits and vegetables as well, but will be much more susceptible to degradation as a result of being exposed. So it appears, for instance, that bananas will not be irradiated because it degrades them so dramatically. But it's a whole spectrum, particularly as there's a spectrum of energy that can be applied, anything from 150 grey to six times as much. So we're arguing that if you say that the minimum is effective for the purpose that you've stated, then if you have to approve anything, just approve the minimum range, the 150 greys, not this whopping amount of one kilogray of energy, the equivalent of as I said before, 10 million x-rays. If you can imagine that amount of energy, it gives you some idea of the scale of this pre-cooking of our fresh fruit and veggie supply. What does it do to the human body? That, that's a good question. And of course, um, it's going to take actual experience. But we see from some animal experiments that um, there are very subtle influences. And I think the fact that... Um, Irradiation is not approved anymore for the irradiation of animal food. Uh, in 2008 and 2009, imported animal cat food from Canada, in fact, made probably of the order of a hundred or a couple of hundred cats in Australia, killed them or, or disabled them dramatically. And there was quite a groundswell of opposition then too. And as a result, the irradiation of cat food is now banned. You can't buy cat food in Australia that's, um, that's been irradiated. And the dog food, which still comes in from overseas and is irradiated, now has a label on it saying, it, do not feed this to cats. Uh, because the authorities claim that uh, the effects that were seen were species 
specific to cats. We're not convinced at all by the rather feeble evidence that um, other organisms, whatever they might be, any pets of any description or indeed human beings might not be adversely affected as well because it's never been properly explored or properly explained why cats had this health, very obvious, quick and fatal, in many cases, uh, health impact. Big question, Mark. You mentioned bananas a couple of minutes ago. What's happening with our Cavendish and Ladyfingers? Well, that's an interesting story too, yes. Um, they are um, subject to a number of different diseases these days, Sikatoka and others that are in danger of wiping out um, vast tracts of those two varieties, which are the main commercial banana varieties worldwide. The the people who do genetic engineering, uh, the gene jockeys are out there in the world looking for the genes that might rescue the commercial bananas. And, of course, where do they look? Uh, very close to home, particularly in Papua New Guinea, where there are dozens, if not hundreds, of different varieties of bananas that have been nurtured by local people and are either growing in the wild there or are, um, are cultivated, which local people depend on but don't have the, um, the attractiveness of the, uh, of the Cavendish and the banana thing and, and the ladyfingers. So we've narrowed the genetic diversity of those particular varieties, and that's what's made them uh, so susceptible to these diseases, which are now travelling around the world, destroying uh, banana plantations very widely. So we've got the gene jockeys going off to um, places like Papua New Guinea, collecting the genes, not recompensing local people for the fact that they've been nurturing them for millennia and uh, taking them off to a global banana gene bank in Belgium. But a lot of the collection is being done by um, people from, around, from here, from Australia. There's also work done at um, Queensland University of Technology on genetically engineering bananas uh, for Africa where they claim that uh, they can introduce gene manipulated bananas that will be uh, also beneficial for local people and so on. Another bit of biopiracy and biocolonialism rather than acknowledging that we need diversity in our um, agriculture and that um, by industrialising everything and coming down to maybe one or two varieties in most cases, like apples, for instance, or pears as well. We don't do ourselves or the future of food security any favours at all. You know, the, the industrial model wants to turn everything into a factory, but factories can burn down. That's a bit analogous to what happens with biodiversity when it's lost in those uh, few varieties that are rescued. You know, there used to be, for instance, in India, tens of thousands of varieties of rice, and now there are two or three left. Because of the industrialization of those most profitable and most productive varieties. So I think it's the wrong direction. We need to go back. We need to compensate um, people who have been nurturing biodiversity for millennia and we need to regard it as a global asset. And we think of all those people in probably you'd call it developing worlds who still farm for a living. And a new study shows that 
global pesticide poisoning is rising and, and these are the people who are suffering from this poisoning. Oh, sure, yes, and, and in very large numbers. I mean, it's quite incredible that um, the numbers, when you, when you look at them, um, about 385 million cases of acute poisonings each year up from an, an estimated 25 million cases in only the last 30 years. You know, pesticides are a scourge on the planet. And of course, they are used by industrial farmers to drive productivity. Industrial farming can't do without them. It's absolutely dependent on synthetic chemical pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers, and the rest of it. And in industrial agriculture, people are relatively well protected because they're using machinery and therefore they've got a little bit of distance and of course the labels on chemicals here although uh, are pretty indicative of what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do whether that's abided by or not we're not so sure because um, of course glyphosate has been used ubiquitously and now many people are um, suffering non-Hodgkin's lymphoma but um when you're talking in, as you say, in Africa, Latin America, Asia, where people are still engaged in agriculture by the hundreds of millions of people, we're talking very, very serious um, impacts indeed. You know, if you could imagine that half of um, those farmers who are now being sold these chemicals are not being properly trained or informed about their use, that um, half of those farmers, the 860 million farmers and agricultural workers still out on the land are poisoned each year. It's just unconscionable that um, Monsanto, Bayer and the, and the rest of the small coterie of agrochemical companies are marketing poisons that are poisoning people and the environment and animals and uh, our whole ecosphere and are getting away with it. And lame regulators like our Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority are allowing them to get away with it. They're not a referee on the public's behalf or in the public interest. They're basically captives of industry. And you've got uh, CropLife, which operates in 92 countries, which represents those agrochemical industries out there spruiking the whole time about how safe things are and how well we're doing with uh, both chemicals and genetic engineering, basically just uh, trying to disinform the population, but are acting exclusively in the interests of those uh, corporations and against the public interest. And I think it's time that our politicians and political processes called them to account. Uh, you might recall, for instance, that um, in 2014 there was a... Um, an agricultural reassessment and re-registration process, a scheme that the Gillard government had established and was due to start operating on the 1st of July in 2014. But the Liberals got elected and Barnaby Joyce, the then minister, um, under the Abbott government, immediately um, disbanded the program for reassessing the safety of the 11,000 registered agricultural chemicals and uh, veterinary and agricultural chemicals in Australia. So there's no reassessment. Many of the chemicals currently used uh, were registered up to 50 years ago. The data was generated by the companies themselves. It was shonky in the first place. Most of them have never been reviewed. And 
what we are saying is that that uh, scheme, which should have gone ahead and was bowled over by Barnaby Joyce with the collaboration of Joel Fitzgibbon from the ALP, was a great loss, I think, to the public and to the public interest and to the safety, which is demonstrated by the current research about the rates of poisonings out on farms. We need them reassessed and re-registered, those that are proven undoubtedly to be safe by contemporary data, data that's independent and is produced now to show that those toxic mixes are not doing immeasurable harm to public health and safety and the environment. Because, of course, now that several of those are starting to fail because the weeds and the insects start becoming resistant when they have war, a chemical war waged against them night and day, year in and year out, the industry is recommending that you use uh, mixtures of chemicals and that that will be more effective and, of course, more toxic and more damaging as well. So... Here in Australia, we've got a real problem. We could fix it. And globally, people are being injured, poisoned and killed at the behest of the agrochemical industries. It's just unacceptable. It's something that we, Friends of the Earth and others, uh, should continue to work on. Uh, Of course, the National Toxics Network is there too, weighing in on this. But we need um, some real response from government. And we're looking for the Labor Party, now that Joel Fitzgibbon has gone from the shadow portfolio to do a U-turn and to come round and promise for the next election that um, there will be chemical reassessment and uh, re-registration of all chemicals in Australia. Can you explain what the new breeding techniques are? Well, the new breeding techniques, of course, yes, these are genetic manipulation techniques that are now coming on the scene, the so-called gene editing, the CRISPR cutting techniques for your our DNA, every living thing, whether it's a human, animal, microorganism or plant, uh, can have its DNA cut, repasted, switched on or off by the new gene editing techniques, some of which... Um, have been deregulated by the Office of Gene Technology Regulator. And now, of course, Food Stamps Australia New Zealand has in the pipeline a debate about new breeding techniques as well. And we believe that sometime next year they'll come out uh, with a proposal that the new breeding techniques and their food products be deregulated as well. That remains to be seen how we're going. But of course, this is a global debate as well, particularly uh, in the EU, but it's been a debate in the USA and really in forums around the world about the future of genetic engineering. Finally, Bob, in a couple of minutes, can you talk about the work of gene ethics this year and what you believe you've achieved? (laughs) You should have forewarned me about that, Mm. Jan. Well, one good thing that we did, there is a um, a general review of the um, food regulatory system uh, in the process at the moment. Of course, it was farmed out to um, consultancies and it's ongoing, but uh, we did make major submissions to that process and argued that the public interest should um, be the main point of the food industry, that um, health and well-being, not just safety very narrowly, defined as the regulators want to, should be 
the food system's raison d'etre. We've got a one and a half million people in Australia who are food insecure, for instance. The review of the food system doesn't say anything about feeding people. It talks about trade and marketing as its main impetus. You know, the agriculture industry led by the National Farmers Federation has got a uh, the objective not of feeding people, not of looking after health and well-being, but producing $100 billion worth of agricultural commodities, mostly for export, by the year 2030. And the regulators are going along with that agenda as well. And from our perspective, that's just on the wrong track. You know, health and well-being and feeding people is what the food supply and the food regulatory system should have as its main goals, not to um, produce more commodities, many of which these days are going, for instance, into biofuel production um, in the EU and in North America. We're producing biomass, canola, wheat, all sorts of other things that, that are certainly shipped overseas to be used either for biofuels or um, industrial products. Instead of saying, we've got one billion people in the world who are malnourished and starving, we've got one billion people who are obese and suffering diabetes and heart disease as a result of the human food supply. And we need to do something about those big picture issues, uh, not just be thinking about can we make a buck out of growing a commodity and sending it overseas for some industrial purpose. It's on the wrong track. And I guess of the important things, and there have been many of them that uh, Gene Ethics has done this year, our contribution to that process um, was, I hope, going to be listened to, though I wouldn't bank on it. And there is another round uh, where we're going to discuss critical issues, high-level policy issues with a submission by mid-January. And again, the, the drift of the discussion that uh, industry and other interests have been able to have already uh, with the reviewers of this process and nothing to do with feeding people, with promoting health and welfare. And so I just think the whole thing is upside down that government, the neoliberal conservative government that runs this country is on the wrong track. And, you know, trade and marketing are fine in their place, but they shouldn't be the number one priority. The other number one priority for all this, of course, is deregulation. So they want to hand the regulation of the food supply to big ag, which is the big processed food industry companies. We know them all, Coke, etc. You know, one of the recent scandals, for instance, was um, that uh, the five-star rating system for um, the healthiness of food in Australia was recently reviewed, and uh, Diet Cola was given a 3.5 star because it didn't contain any sugar. And orange juices, without any added sugar, were given a 2 because they've got sugar in them. Natural fruit sugars, of course. So... How out of kilter can things be when you get an example like that? Um, there has been, of course, outrage about that particular case and something will be done about it. But I'm sure that cola is going to stay up there as a healthy product. That is a result, of course, of um, 
global industry lobbying by Coca-Cola and other interests. It's just really outrageous that our food supply can be so compromised by our governments, by industry. It's only the crossbench in the parliament, uh, the Greens and uh, the independents, uh, who are raising any issues about this. Basically, Labor and the Nationals, who drive the Liberal Party, are um, intensifying the industrialisation of the production of food and uh, degrading its quality and its um, healthiness. I think this year has been, been good because people started cooking more at home, but we still need to think about the affordability of food, access to good fresh fruits and vegetables that are not contaminated with uh, pesticide residues, making the whole community more attentive to health and well-being, the goal of eating, uh, not just marketing and trade, as governments would have us believe. Lots to talk about next year, Bob. Yes, indeed. Um, thanks very much for having us on, Jan. Australia's first LGBTIQ plus purpose-built centre opens early 2021 and we need your support. Be a giver this Christmas and send your loved ones a gift of pride. The Victorian Pride Centre has launched unique gift cards to fundraise fitting out the centre and they're the queer holiday cards of dreams. These affordable gifts and fun stocking fillers support the LGBTIQ plus community. Gifts of pride can be purchased with a few clicks. Head to pridecentre.org.au to start shopping and subscribe. The Victorian Pride Centre is a 3CR supporter. Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment. I'm not getting a fair go and I don't like it and I'm saying so. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55 on the AM dial. And for the last time this year, I'm speaking with Dr. Tim Anderson. Tim, it's been a momentous year for you personally, as we discussed two weeks ago, and for all of us, of course, with the pandemic. But what other issues have occupied your time and resources during 2020? As you know, I'm an internationalist and I have spent a lot of time in Latin America. So I've been following that, but then I've been following the Middle East for the last decade too, you know. So really I've been looking more and more at the regional sort of aspects of it. Like, for example, I don't think we can understand all of the wars in the Middle East separately. We have to look at them all together. And the same goes for Latin America too. What's going on with Venezuela and Bolivia and Ecuador and Cuba and so on? We don't really understand them unless we look at that sort of regional picture and why the conflict's going on and what's at stake, really. And what's your assessment? Well, there is this struggle, and you could you could sort of make parallel between the Middle East or West Asia and, and Latin America. 
between the big power that wants to intervene and control everything and the forces of resistance. Effectively, it's a resistance, an imperialism, bipolar world, basically. We have an empire which is in decline and which is quite desperately trying to hang on to its old privileges. And we have independent forces, even though we live in a post-colonial world, supposedly, all of the traces of the colonial world are still there. And so that's why my writing and my teaching in recent years is all focused towards that. And I'm starting to teach a new online course next year with some universities, hopefully in the Middle East, called Self-Determination in the Post-Colonial World, because that's a real uh, important theme to me in the areas that I've been looking at. When you're talking about Latin America... Which countries do you believe are actually stepping up to the mark? Well, at the centre of it is little Cuba, of course. That Cuba has had a tremendous impact on Latin America and the world, in fact, even though it's a small country with only 11 million people. But it's been at the centre of the regional alignments and realignments. For example, the ALBA created 16 years ago with Hugo Chavez, with Venezuela, and then including Bolivia and then Ecuador and other countries. So Cuba is important, Venezuela is important because it has the weight, the, the economic weight um, to lead new Latin American blocs. And let's remember when Chavez and Fidel were around, they created not just the ALBA, but also they reinvigorated UNASUR, the Union of South American Countries, and CELAC, the Caribbean and Latin American coalition of 600 million people, 33 countries. So that new regional alignment carried out in the first few years of this century was very important for the independence of all of Latin America and it created possibilities for all the other countries like some of the progressive programs that were started for example for uh, let's say people with curable blindness or disabled people in rural areas for example created by Cuba and Venezuela they spilled over into other countries like Peru for example, and Colombia, other countries that weren't part of the left bloc, but they were influenced by these developments. And it was only possible because they were independent developments. They weren't following the dictates of a neoliberal structure. When you think of all the other governments and leaders that the Americans have got rid of, why is Cuba still there? One, it's got a tremendous unity it's stuck with a one-party system which it was conceived in the late 19th century by its hero, Jose Marti, that when they are under that sort of threat, they are not going to allow themselves to be divided. So unity and the, the cultural traditions of Cuba is not just a socialist country, but a country that has Martian ideals, that is to say that they believe in education and culture in a wider sense. So unity and culture are the two important themes, which sometimes Western leftists don't really understand the significance of that unity and culture, but there's this very deep tradition in Cuba which Fidel Castro picked up on from Jose Marti and, and they've carried through, and it, it's helped them survive some incredibly tough times. Uh, Cuba's going through quite tough times now because of the economic war that's going on, been driven by um, Washington in recent times. But it also had tremendously difficult times in the 90s when the, its major trade partner, the then Soviet Union, collapsed. So Cuba's been able to survive those sorts of pressures where other little countries have 
collapsed, say Nicaragua, Sandinista Nicaragua, succumbed effectively to the economic blockade back in the 80s and 90s, for example. But nevertheless, it's been a, a guiding light in the rest of Latin America, and um, they acknowledge that. And then the role of Chavez in Venezuela is also well, well and widely acknowledged, including by right-wing leaders. So there's a very interesting post-colonial culture in Latin America, which has, of course, a couple of common languages, one common language in particular, and a common culture, a shared history, a shared colonial history, which has enabled the links between those sorts of countries, between the Latin American countries, to create a, a counterweight, if you like, to the, the big neighbour they have at the north. So there are important lessons, I believe, for other regions from what Latin America has been doing. And let's remember, Latin America has the longest tradition of post-colonial culture in the world. That is to say, the initial decolonisation in Latin America began a little over 200 years ago. So whereas in the rest of the world, in Africa and Asia, it's much more recent than that. Well, what about the decolonisation in the Middle East? What's the story now? There's no strong country that stands out like Cuba is in Latin America. Not in exactly the same way, but the, there is a key player there, and that's Iran. And the reason for that is that Iran, since the revolution in 1979, and whatever you think about states that, <coughs> that build religion into their system, and, and a number of Middle Eastern states, Syria, for example, don't like that themselves, but it hasn't stood in the way of Syria and Iran having this rock-solid relationship. Here's another thing about the resistance nations, or let's say the 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 independent coalitions that have been created in Latin America and uh, the Middle East, they aren't about homo homogenizing culture. They aren't about following a particular model. So you see Cuba and Venezuela and Bolivia are very different systems, but they share enough and they share enough in values to be able to work strongly together. And the same thing with Syria, which is the most secular pluralist nation in the entire region there. Um, but its coalition with Iran, which is very much obsessed with the idea of Islamic civilization and um, an Islamic state in its own way. They've been able to work together for more than 40 years. So Iran, because of its um, strong commitment to independence, because of its weight, and it's the biggest country in the region, its capacity, it's got tremendous educational depth, for example, and because the other big countries of the region, Turkey is in NATO and Egypt was sidelined back in the 70s through its compromises with um, the big power. Iran plays a very important role in the Middle East, and that's why, of course, Israel and the US are absolutely obsessed with Iran. Where does human rights come into these countries? Human rights has its foundation in the principle of self-determination, and this is something that Western cultures don't recognise very well, that when the... Um, some substance was given to the international human rights instruments in the, in the 1960s. It began not with the Western liberal concept of human rights, but with the self-determination and independence of people. And so the first principle of the, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights created in 1966 was this right of the people to self-determination. Something that's not recognised very well in, in Western traditions, but it's extremely important. And if you look at 
organisations like the Non-Aligned Movement, for example, they are always repeating this theme. And But human rights um, in recent times has been weaponised by the Western powers, by US and Britain in particular, for example, also France to a degree, the NATO powers who are the intervening powers, you know, there's still the, the imperial powers in the post-colonial world. They weaponise and use human rights arguments as pretext to attack other countries. And this is the, the sad state of affairs of human rights these days that also, of course, they've funded and created other bodies like Human Rights Watch. They've co-opted um, older bodies like Amnesty International to pursue these human rights pretexts for intervention, humanitarian intervention in the 21st century. So this is why I began teaching courses in the political economy of human rights at the beginning of this century because it's become such a politicised concept and used to promote particular intervention agendas. And right at the centre of all of the Middle East is Israel. Yes, and they say correctly it's a cancer in the region because Israel, properly understood, is really a colony, a British colony in the first instance. Now its principal backer is the US. It's a colony of European and Russian Zionists, basically, which has that has its own history, but it is more important because it serves the purpose of the big powers at the moment to have a foothold, to have a base in the region. And, of course, that base... Um, for the US, for NATO, destabilises all the other countries of the region. No, if there were no Israel, as Joe Biden said, we would have to create one. That was a Biden some years ago. And also, but if there were no Israel, then all of the local conflicts would be resolved in a much shorter matter of time. But because Israel is one ethnically cleansing Palestinians who are now the majority in that part of the world occupying Lebanese territory, occupying Syrian territory, attacking Syria repeatedly, attacking Iraq, using Iran as a pretext to try and trigger wider war and draw the US into the region. All these conflicts um, have at their root this problem of the, the Zionist colony in Palestine and really they can't be resolved without recognising that that colony has become an apartheid state, which in international law is a crime against humanity. Now, there's some recent good documents on that, but the reason I mention that here is that we can't understand the character of, of the conflict in the Middle East unless we recognise that apartheid is sitting in the centre there and it's something that can't, there can't be peace. People, unfortunately, live with the illusion that 73-year-old illusion that there's going to be a Palestinian state and there's some basis for this in the Oslo Accords, the creation of a Palestinian authority, which itself is something of an obstacle to this. But really, the Palestine these days looks very much like South Africa did in the 80s. I don't know if you remember, Jan, but back then, just before the collapse of apartheid, there was this idea of homelands for the majority African people in South Africa, and they were tiny little Bantustans, little areas dotted around South Africa. That was the last gasp of trying to <clears throat> create a separate sort of apartheid mini-state within a state there. And that's precisely what the Trump administration was proposing earlier this year um, in version two of, of the Kushner plan there. 
But when that illusion disappears, um, it'll become very clear internationally that this is an apartheid state with half, more than half the people not having any citizenship rights and something has to be done to dismantle that apartheid state. And then, of course, the problems in Syria, the problems in Lebanon will take an entirely different character. The whole region will be influenced by the, the dismantling of the apartheid Zionist state in Palestine. That's going to be a very difficult thing to do, Tim, though. I think it's uh, inevitable, and the the reason I say that is that even though it appears as if Israel is very strong and has virtually complete military control over the West Bank, for example, and doesn't allow Gaza to emerge from its prison, but we could have said the same about South Africa in the 80s. South Africa was militarily the strongest power in, in Southern Africa. It had nuclear weapons. It had powerful allies in Thatcher and Reagan. Within a few years, it collapsed. What happened? What's behind that? I think the thing we have to recognize about Palestine is that Palestine has resisted all these years. The, the, the creators of Israel in the late 1940s, David Ben-Gurion, wanted at least 80 to 90% a Jewish population in Palestine. He wanted at least 80% of the lands of Palestine. They proceeded down that path um, in securing the lands, but more than half the population remains Arab-Palestinian. And that's that's a fact, a, a demographic fact that they can't get around. Secondly, at the legitimacy level, Palestine has tremendous recognition at an international level. If you look outside what Washington's saying and perhaps what's coming from London, tremendous legitimacy and the Israeli leaders fear this. There's two recent prime ministers of Israel, Barak and Olmert, that are on record in recent years as saying that as soon as the illusion of a two-state solution disappears, they face an unwinnable anti-apartheid campaign. Why? Because an apartheid state is well recognised now as a crime against humanity and it can't be tolerated in international terms. So there's a legitimacy problem for Israel. It appears strong, but it's really quite desperately lashing out around the world now, for example, particularly in the US and Britain, um, against anyone who's criticizing Israel, anyone who's particularly standing up for the resistance there, because it knows that this legitimacy campaign is absolutely critical for the survival of a Jewish state as it's conceived. And I think we have to look for the explanation as to the huge campaigns against the Corbyn Labour Party in Britain for that reason. They are extremely, extremely sensitive. There's a huge effort being made to try and cover up the fact that this is an apartheid state and to try and shoot down, disqualify voices around the world. And, you know, they've got blacklists of hundreds of professors in the US, for example, who've joined the BDS movement. Um, they're purging the British Labour Party at the moment. This is a very strong, concerted campaign to try and cover up the ugly reality of what's going on in Palestine. A change of leadership in the United States, what do you believe that will mean? I don't think, and I've never really thought that those changes mean a lot. They mean more in style than in substance, really, because Biden is not going to be a character of, of great initiatives, I don't believe. He is far more acceptable to the the U.S. oligarchy, the elite, if you like, 
precisely because he's pliable in that sort of way. And, and given his age and, and uh, state of mind, it seems likely that uh, in any case, uh, Kamala Harris may be president within a very short space of time. So the, the face of liberal imperialism, if you like, in the US is something that places much greater emphasis on what they've called smart power. There'll be a different language. There'll be a different language to try and justify the wars that are going on. There is a movement in the deep state in the US to try and redefine the boundaries of the wars that they're losing in the Middle East, for example. But I think it will be more a change in style than in substance. China? Well, China is... China and the US, it's like... Isn't it like King Canute, you know, putting his seat down by the ocean? Maybe this was a myth, but, you know, saying that he could, the king could command the, the ocean, the tide not to stop, the ocean to stop. China, the rise of China economically is inexorable. You know, nothing is going to stop it. The fact that the Trump administration couldn't deal with it and is acting in a extremely mercantilist way, abandoning most of its liberal economic principles, for example, to engage in an economic war. We've got a huge economic war going on around the planet now. It's, it's quite a contradiction to older uh, economic liberal ideas, but the U.S. has some form of sanction against dozens and dozens of countries these days, and at the center of its obsession is China and then perhaps Russia. But, um, you know, the, the wider picture behind that is that, and this is goes back to the Brzezinski idea that the U.S., is really going to be seriously marginalised in the world if there is significant integration between Europe and Asia. So the whole Eurasia, which is the centre of the world effectively, Europe and Asia together are the great bulk of, of humanity. And if there is very strong infrastructural links between China through West Asia, the Middle East and Russia through to, to Europe, and there are good relationships with Europe and Russia and China in that sort of way, then the influence of the US in the world, particularly in Europe and in Asia, is going to be seriously diminished and the US will retreat to its own continent effectively. So that's the big, the great game of today that's going on in the world. And I think there's, there's nothing really that can stop the rise of China. Not to say that China will be an empire, but certainly that may happen later on. It's not happening at the moment, but certainly China is on the rise and Everyone should be dealing with that, including our own little country here. Okay, well, all I can say is good luck with your new career and hopefully speak to you in the new year. Thanks very much, Jan. Happy New Year to you too. Dr. Tim Anderson and for the final program of this year. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Music has been at the heart of the city of Darabin's rich cultural history. Beats, Ballads and Ballrooms is an audio tour that covers the history of country, rock, punk, cabaret, rabbinica, folk and traditional music styles in the Darabin area. Experienced as a walking tour via the Echoes app or listened to at home via the web. The tour brings listeners to 15 locations to reveal the songs and stories behind the city's venues, past and present. Visit BeatsBalladsAndBallrooms.com for more information. Beats, Ballads and Ballrooms was commissioned and funded by Darabin Arts for Hyperlocal. A 3CR supporter.
current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. My last program for 2020, we're celebrating the life and work of Tony Flood, who died in September this year. In his retirement, a tireless worker for and at Westgate Park, a neglected abandoned park which was transferred into a bushland setting for locally indigenous plants, a place where visitors can appreciate richly diverse natural ecosystems in a beautiful landscape. I'm speaking first with his partner of over 40 years, environmentalist George Fotheringham, and then to friend and fellow environmentalist Neil Blake from the Port Phillip Eco Centre in St Kilda. George, for the last nearly 20 years, Tony and yourself devoted your lives to the development of Westgate Park from a sandpit to natural beauty. But prior to that, was Tony an environmentalist in other ways? We've both always had a a deep love of the Australian bush and Australian uh, native plants. And um, I think Tony goes back to when he was um, at Melbourne Grammar and they had an extensive bushwalking regime and they used to go on long, long um, overnight hikes. It was through that that we come together for our love of bushwalking in the bush. Through that, Tony has He's been a member of the Australian Conservation Foundation. He's been a member of the uh, the National Parks Association. He's been a paid-up member for you know years, decades of those things. He's always had that interest in, in putting money where his mouth is in that respect. What was your background, George? Funnily, for um, someone who spent the first 12 years in Scotland, when I uh, come to Australia, I just almost immediately <laughs> took to the Australia and the Australian bush and you call it in a big way, you know. And, uh, so I've always had that interest from an early age, and then um, I've always been interested in gardening and horticulture. So I um, I did a gardening apprenticeship with uh, the old Melbourne City Council when they still did things like that become a qualified gardener and worked in gardening and parks and um, eventually 
got out into landscaping, working for different um, landscape companies, and after a while, after about 10 years of that, learning the trade, I become self-employed with my own companies, a landscape company specialising in native uh, plants. Uh, after Tony retired in 2000, I, I started to um, become uh, engaged with, with Westgate Parking, so it was sort of a almost natural stepping stone along the way. You know, the, everything in my my life has been leading to to doing this sort of activity. Um, I couldn't believe it when the chance came around. There was Westgate Park in a degrading state, just waiting, um, waiting for some um, love and tender care sort of thing, you know. How did you find out about the park? I remember when, when it was first announced back in 1985 by the Kane Kerner government. And I, I thought, uh, that's a really good idea, you know, and it was going to be a native park. And so I, I took a, an interest in it, and I used to go down there and watch them building it. You know, the park was um, dead flat. There all, all the hills around there created and the lakes too. And it was a, sort of a semi-industrial site. So I, I was always interested in it. And, and then the park was um, finished and planted out with all Australian plants, but uh, not, not indigenous plants. You know, they, they come from all over Australia, lots of Western Australian stuff. That was 85 it opened, and then over the next 15 years till I started to get involved, I used to go down there, I used to walk my dog. And it was sad because it was just going backwards. You know, they, they opened it and they was big fanfare and all that, and then it just got sort of neglected. Nobody cared much about it, and with successive droughts, so a lot of the plants died, and areas that were shrub beds become overgrown, and some of them even got uh, returned to lawn because they were so overgrown. The uh, the lawnmower contracts they didn't know when it was lawn or beds or what, so it just got mowed and. We found like plastic squares way out in the middle of the lawn, and we realised, oh, this used to be a a garden bed at some stage, and it's it's all disappeared. So through neglect, nobody cared much about it. With drought and overgrown, all they used to do was cut the grass and clean the toilets. By 2000, it was in a pretty sad state, been going backwards for 15 years. And I was walking my dog once one day down there, and the, through the, uh, the the notice board, you know, the old cut-off section of the Westgate Bridge itself, forms our notice board. And there was a sign there saying we're forming a a friends group to help rejuvenate this park. If you want, if you're interested, come along. And that was put up by Naomi Sunner, twenty-year-old girl at the time, and, and another guy. Which was pretty, uh, pretty great sort of thing to do. I, I wouldn't have the gumption uh, to do it myself at that stage. And so she started the group and been going for a few months. And I said, "Oh, well, I'll, I'll go along." And that's how I got involved. Did you get Tony involved or enthused about it as well? No, Tony just retired and he, he had this bug about genealogy. You know, he goes like a, a, a ball of a gate, anything that he, <laughs> anything he tackles. 
they went on for a couple of years where he was really into it was almost an obsession uh, on the, the fluid family tree. Anyway, that ran its course. So after a couple of years, uh, he was looking for something, and he knew that I'd been down the park talking about it, and he wasn't that interested in it at first. And then uh, he, he gradually started coming down, and then, um, well, he got the bug, and then the rest of his history, he, he became really enthusiastic, really committed. But he didn't have the gardening skills that you have. No, no, he didn't have any of the horticultural skills, and he knew that. He never tried to. He didn't want to learn about plants or um, plant names or botanical names or anything like that. He was always focused on the uh, organisational side of it. That was his forte. Um, we had enough uh, botanical knowledge with me and Naomi. Uh, we were both pretty on top of that sort of thing. But what we did need was um, accounting skills and um, you know management skills and skills to uh, bring people together and make contacts and liaise and all that sort of thing, which is, of course, is what he'd done in his career. And he worked for Mobile for, um, I think it was about 30 years. He only ever had one job, and that was Mobile in middle management, where he was greatly respected for his ability and his um, keen grasp of everything that was going on. And keeping everything under control, he, he had an incredibly organised mind. I couldn't do it myself. Um, it was just the way he was. And that, that was the particular skill that he brought. Yeah. So he could see the opportunities for him to use his skills on top of what you were doing? Yeah, yeah. That's when we started to get organised. Naomi was full of enthusiasm, but she didn't really know the best ways to go ahead. And that's when we started talking about getting to work for the dolls or whatever it was called in those days. Um, there's always been schemes, you know, unimportant schemes around. Um, we had oh, countless, maybe 20, 30 uh, work for the dolls schemes over the years, which was a really good source of um, funding because you, you get the, uh, the money for the uh, supervisors and you get money to implement the program, and, and that was a major source of our funding. And then um, we heard about this uh, corporate volunteering, which was one of our biggest sources of funding. Tony was right into that. He liaised with people, he, he encouraged them, and he always went back. And um, if he got a, a nibble from somewhere and then they, he hadn't heard from me, he didn't let it slide. He always, uh, you know, he, he was good at uh, keeping up the pressure. And uh, he made incredible alliances with uh, companies and people. That really was his skill. He was talking to people and, and this tenacity not to give up or let things slide. His organisation skills were really incredible. I I could never do it. I wouldn't have the uh, the stamina to keep going and calling people up and talking on the phone. They were on phone phobic myself. <laughs> he was right into that. So it wasn't just getting money from the corporations. It was also getting the volunteers from those corporations to assist with the building of the park. Yeah, yeah. And he always prided himself on having them come back year after year. 
he always insisted we must be professional, do a good job, don't have people standing around and, um, you know, bored or uh, with lack of direction. He liked to run it like a, you know, like a military thing. He was famous for his uh, programs whenever we had a big day. He'd spend a couple of days before working out the schedule and the timetable so that everything was really organised and um, everybody knew where they were to be and how long the activity was going to go before the changeover and the swap over to something else and and he made sure all, all the staff and uh, people um, knew exactly what was going on. Really well done. You know, he, he put a lot of effort into logistics. Were there also a lot of school groups who came as volunteers? Yeah, yeah. Tony was always keen to get school groups in. And again, he had relationships with um, particular schools. I think it was some school in South Melbourne. I, I never took much interest. I just knew that school kids were coming and Tony had it, it all worked out. And he, he had this long-time relationship with the people at the school. And it was very productive and uh, you know, very useful and hopefully um, inspirational for the school kids. And we always like to try and show them, you know, the best thing to do and why you do it for the environment and uh, hopefully create a bit of, you know, a spark of interest there. And that was your job? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll handle all, all, all the horticultural stuff and, you know, what goes where and, and what we're going to do and... But he liaised with the uh, teachers in the, the community. So he, he delivered them to us and we, we did the rest. I'd have to say another one thing that he was really proud of was um, for 10 years we had a, a group of um, intellectually disabled young adults and they come, I think it was once a week. For 10 years this went on and um, Tony loved that because... Uh, you could see that the people themselves loved it, and uh, and we we liked it. It wasn't necessarily the, the best productivity for us, you know, but that was yes, it was always important. It was um, the the community aspect and uh, and seeing the the people really get stuck into it and enjoy it, and they saw the fruits of their labour over the ten years until they eventually uh, decided that they weren't going to come again. So, yeah, so Tony was very proud of that. And I imagine that there were a number of those young people who worked with you came back later as visitors to the park? Sure, yeah. Yeah, we've had people um, long after any involvement were all working at the park. We still hear from them, yeah, because... You know, they had an investment in the park. They remember planting and all the hard work that went in. They love to come back and, and see it. You know, if you come back 10 years later, the tree you planted is, is huge and, you know, you, they get a real buzz from that. And the whole project, when you look at a severely degraded area like the southern wetlands and see what it is now, you know, of course people get a buzz. They, they want to come back and see it and remember their um, contribution to it. Well, as well as Tony negotiating with corporations, he also had to deal with local authorities and government departments, both above ground and yeah. un- and underground. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know that from John's work. Yes. Talk about that. Yeah. Again, he had liaisons with all the local. He made it his job to to know everybody around from the uh, you know the local um, stevedoring companies, the uh, Melbourne Water, heard the sewerage, uh, put the port of Melbourne, of course, the GMH across the road where we got um, volunteers. We're talking about, to them about getting water off the roof. Even the Herald Sun, which uh, wasn't one of their most successful, but we used to talk to them. And again, he, he had good relationships um, with all those authorities. And um, uh, Boeing was the other one, of course. He was always talking to them about getting water or um, organising field days. And he had that uh, network. He was a great networker. He, when I inherited his phone and I looked up his contacts, I was amazed. I think there was um, something like 800 on his uh, contact list. <laughs> I'm going to be at 50. He knew everybody, he kept in touch, he knew where they were, and if, if we needed them for anything or to for a complaint or a, to ask for a favour or whatever, he, that, that was his great skill. He relished it. What about the underground services? Because... That was um, where the park was, wasn't it? It was right where there were all these underground services that were vital for Victoria, virtually. Yeah, well, that was in the Southern Wetland project that John did. And, of course, he was always worried that he was going to um, hit one of those uh, gas pipes or whatever. But, um, you know, John did the right thing and he knew exactly where everything was and he talked to all those uh, relevant authorities and Tony was right there with them. And it's amazing that we were able to get in there and dig billabongs right over those services, but because John was so competent and good with dealing with the authorities himself, and it was excessive and there was no problems. Yeah, it's only in that particular uh, corridor where there's um, the, the things to worry about. Most of the park was very little to worry about as far as underground pipes and pipelines and all that go. Where did all the plants come from? You, you know, the uh, Skint Nursery, uh, the Indigenous Nursery in Port Melbourne, that was around for about 10 years before the Friends was established. And that was just a group of... Uh, enthusiasts who um, wanted to see uh, indigenous plantings around the place and that Rob Scott was the, one of the main instigators there and they set up this uh, St Indigenous Nursery Cooperative in his name Stint so they were there already and so when we started we used to get a lot of stuff from them and then of course when we started to get funding from work for the dole or corporates. Oh, and the other thing, of course, I'm going to say about Tony is his grant applications. He was absolutely incredible, indefatigable with his um, going after grants. And we reckon he got well over a million dollars just from applying over 20 years. They were really time-consuming. They, they were boring. They were laborious. He used to exhaust them. Um, he'd work in them for a couple of days because they're, you know, pages and pages long. It's full of bureaucratic speak. And, you know, you've got to try and 
second guess what the, the bureaucrat on the other end is, is, is thinking. You've got to try and get into their mindset and say the right things that's going to make them uh, go your way. That was one of Tony's greatest skills in contribution to the group. It was, a, it was an incredible amount of money that he was able to bring in. Anyway, just what I was saying about planes, when we got the money, we'd buy them from Skink. And then we set up our own nursery when we got our compound. And then we started growing a lot. So we, we probably grew about a third of our stuff and bought the rest from Skink. And we wanted to do that because, uh, you know, a lot of the volunteers love the, uh, the nursery side of it especially ones that aren't too fit and they love the propagating and the potting up and the just watching the plants go from seed to out to the park. It's very satisfying for the volunteers to have the hands on right from the very start. So that's where our plants come from, is a combination of buying and growing your own. Was Tony also responsible for the extra land, the, the adjacent land that you were able to incorporate into the park? Was he the negotiator for that? Yeah, very much. We had our, um, well, what I call our top flyers, um, Lecky Ord, who used to be the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, and um, Ren Allison, who used to be the uh, leader of the Democrats in the Senate, and they were the great political skills. And Tony, with his, you know, it, organisational skills that he had from 30 years with mobile. Yeah, so there was the three of them, and they were, were not the type to take no for an answer. We just saw there was all this land around the park on just about every side that were just lying there doing nothing, and we started saying, well, why can't we add that to the park? And, of course, um, when they built the new port, port development, and they, they took a chunk of the, the park away for a, a road into the port development, we had to negotiate with the Port of Melbourne, and we, we got that new slice of uh, land down by the river. So there was all that sort of um, touring and throwing over that sort of stuff. But then also um, there was a, another bit of land upstream in the river near Pier 35, just sitting there doing nothing. And then, of course, the whole southern wetlands it was just that easement for uh, services easement. Uh, and it was also just a, a big long channel to take the 100 year flood sort of thing. It flowed from Port Melbourne down to the Yarra. Nobody would touch it because of the underground services. Well, just inertia basically. And so it was just this weed infested. It was just a, a long, long, long stretch of um, with this channel down the middle. We couldn't even see the channel because it was half full of crap that had been dumped there and, and weed metres high and all sorts of crap. And we said, well, you know, why can't that be added to the park? It was some government department that owned it. It was the Liberal government at the time, and um, and we had the we had the premier in that thing, and um, and the so-called environment minister, <laughs> I forget his name yet. and they said, yeah, you can have it. We just handed over and we came up with a plan and the funding and uh, Tony and Lecky and Lynn were all very instrumental. Um, but Tony was sort of, he loved expanding the park and um, turning over wasteland into productive land. 
a lot of visitors come to the park now. What is there to encourage visitors to come? What do they see now when they come? We've got a lot of different visitors. We've got a lot of uh, bird watchers, which we're always thrilled to see. And, of course, the, the work we've done the last 20 years has really been led to an improvement in uh, bird sightings. And we've gone up from, I think it was about 80 species when we first started recorded in the park to over 166 now. Not saying that that's all due to what we've done. A lot of it's due to the fact that there's more people coming and and being there to record birds as they arrive. But, um, well, that's doubled, isn't it? So, uh, yeah... And they come for that during COVID. It's been a very, as, as any park anywhere in Melbourne, you would have noticed, is just exploded with um, people walking, picnicking, uh, walking the dogs, little kids on bikes. Um, it, you know, it's a great open air space. They come for that. They come to get a, a touch of the bush. You know, you can really, in certain parts of the park, you can feel that you're actually in the bush so close to Melbourne with the trees and the plants and the wildflowers especially in spring a lot of people come along just for the wildflowers What about animals and fish? There's no fish to speak of but the only fish we've got is that pest species gambusia you know that little two inch long mosquito fish that was introduced to control mosquitoes and didn't work. It was the cane toad all over. We have been talking about introducing native species, but um, it's, it's never come to anything. You know, you, maybe Tony should have been on that. <laughs> We've got somewhere. We've also tried in the past to get more frog species introduced, but there's a reluctance on the, you know, you go to a government department uh, we, we'd like to get the grey and grass frog, but of course that's not going to happen because it's much too guarded about and because it's endangered. But there are other species, you know, the striped marsh frog and the spotted marsh frog that we, we could have introduced. But we have made um, inquiries and put out feelers, but, you know, sometimes we just had a bureaucratic hump and, and nothing happens. You know, we've got our resident possums, two species, and uh, there's certainly birds are the, uh, the most noticeable aspect that people see. They had some yellow-tailed black cockatoos there last week, and everybody got a big thrill out of that. And we've got our snakes and our blue tongues, and um, animals aren't a great feature, apart from the, um, the birds. Yeah, it's mainly the vegetation that um, people would notice and, what about the Pink Lake? The Pink Lake, yeah, well, it's a sort of a, a blessing and a curse. It certainly um, it puts the park on the map. In fact, a few years ago when it was one of its pinkest stages, it was world famous. Um, remember uh, CNN had a thing on it, some German newspaper had a spread on it in, in Britain and America, and, you know, it, it was fabulous pink lake in an Australian city, which is good, but um, it also has a downside, is that you get hordes and hordes of people. The last time when it was really deep pink, like a hot pink, there was thousands of people that turned up every day, and of course they walked all around the lake and all our salt marsh plants got absolutely obliterated. 
<laughs> we just crowds and crowds and crowds of people everywhere. And the disappointing thing is that most of them just come from the Pink Lake and the Pink Lake alone. I'd watch them, you know, they'd pull up at the car park, go and have a look at the Pink Lake, get in the car and go away. And, you know, the park was of no interest. It was all the Pink Lake. So we're a bit ambivalent about the Pink Lake. It's certainly a phenomenon, but with a lot of negatives um, attached to it. So anyway, we're, we're glad that it hasn't turned pink during COVID because we don't want the crabs. There's a possibility from now on in the first half of the year that it could turn pink, but then with the La Nina, which means um, more rainfall, it probably won't happen because the lake needs to be high for saline and, and rainfall dilutes it. So hopefully it'll keep it at bay for a little while longer and give the vegetation a chance to recover. But in, in the long term, we're going to have to run store boardwalks and uh, direct the public so that they don't just devastate the... You know, the salt marsh vegetation can't take trampling by thousands of people, or, and they go all around and even sit on the salt marsh plants and have <laughs> picnics and all sorts of things. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're glad we've had a reprieve in the last couple of years. You love the activity. You love the people, you know, the people that come along to fringe groups, they really are the salt of the earth, They're the sort of people you want to mix with. He was greatly loved by everybody down there, both for his uh, humour and his skills, and he was much appreciated. And also, the other thing I should mention is that he, what he called his second job was the Secure uh, Eco Centre, he was secretary there for about 15 years. He put all his skills and um, organisation ability to, to great effect there. And he was probably one of the best that they've ever had. For, uh, again, he was tenacious and wouldn't let things slide or let things you know, slip. And he made really strong friendships there too. And they were all devastated when he died. Come back exhausted and they said, well... Well, why don't you give up the eco-centre? You know, you've got enough, you've got all this on your plate here in the park. And he said, no, I like doing it. People need me there, and I've got the skills that they need. That was his other activity. I've been speaking with George Fotheringham about the life and work of his partner, Tony Flute, who died in September this year. La Mama is thrilled to reopen and welcome you back to the theatre from the 5th through to the 20th of December. The program includes a two-week season of Iranian Bauhaus by Alna Sheskalani, a series of play readings curated by Rosemary Johns and the first live La Mama Poetica since March. To ensure the comfort and safety of audiences, artists and staff, La Mama's put together a COVID-safe plan in line with the Victorian government guidelines. You can see all the information on La Mama's COVID safety page. Check out lamama.com.au for all information. La Mama is a 3CR supporter. Continuing the tribute to Tony Flood, who died in September. We heard from his partner, George Fotheringham, next to Neil Blake, founding director of the Port Phillip Eco Centre. 
Neil Tony had an important role at the Eco Centre. Was he involved at the beginning? No, not at the very beginning. Tony arrived when he retired from his work, but it probably would have been um, from uh, around about 2007 or so when he got involved. Quite a long period of time he has been involved in the committee. Similarly, on his retirement from work, he got heavily involved in Westgate Park too, and his organisational capacity, his amazing abilities, and a great contributor to both organisations a long period of time. So did Westgate Park come out of the Eco Centre? Westgate Park has been, well, an evolving thing that uh, probably started becoming a park after the Westgate Bridge got built. It was noted that the gateway to Melbourne was basically a landfill site. <laughs> you know, there were steps taken to sort of start landscaping it as more of a parkland area. The Friends of Westgate Park, though, sort of uh, emerged probably um, around about 1990, I think, so they've been around for quite a while. You know, a small organisation that sort of, uh, you know, like a local Friends group dedicated in trying to get local native plants into the landscape there. And really their um, capacity, though, was just increased enormously when Tony Flute came along because of his organisational abilities, but also his networking skills as well. Naturally, Tony is a very good communicator. One of the key things, though, that, that helped really was when Rob Yule, who was working with Landcare Victoria, inquired about uh, the possibility of a major corporate donor looking for a local project that they could um, you know, invest in. Uh, Westgate Park was the obvious uh, choice there because of uh, the fact that the donor was just across the road and also uh, Tony and George were key players there. George understood the, the planting and all that sort of side of things and Tony understood sort of how to communicate with donors, etc. So that really kicked off a, a really terrific and productive era, I suppose, for Westgate Park by encouraging corporates uh, to get involved in either as contributing labour for working bees or also uh, putting in uh, funding though, for, for plants, etc. Really tapped into a, a rich sort of uh, source of uh, support for the park and development of the park, the proximity to the city, you know, so the, the locality which was ideal for corporate groups to get their teams to go down and have a day's working there. Lots of boxes ticked, but the most important one was there was somebody with Tony's skills in uh, communicating and organising that made it all possible. Tony was uh, in management with a, a corporate organisation. His early uh, days, though, uh, I understand it, uh, he was in the cadets in his, his uh, secondary school years was a, a quartermaster, you know, was a great at organising the supplies for group exercises and activities and just the logistics and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's something that I think he's carried with him uh, throughout his his whole uh, career, really, and in, in either paid or voluntary capacity, just those organisational skills and attention to detail, but also his personable character and nature and making people... Uh, feel that uh, they were being listened to and they were valued and, and that their, their needs would be accommodated. 
What was his connections with Landcare? Oh, well, that just came about through, um, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, Rob uh, Yule. The connection was that Tony was the uh, representative of the group that the site could be developed by the investment through Landcare. So he wasn't actually involved in Landcare, but is like many uh, organisations that Landcare liaised with, with potential um, looking for projects that corporates uh, might contribute to. He was uh, the person at the end of the, of the phone line who could uh, sort of move it on to the next step and make it a productive outcome. Also with his organising skills, getting on with and, and cooperating with the government bodies in that area down by or Web Dock and it's down under the bridge, Westgate Bridge, are lots of issues there. That's right. I mean, uh, in the early days, uh, the land to the south of Westgate Park and between Web Dock was just uh, undeveloped areas of salt marsh, but there was also a lot of weeds and, and there's easements with different uh, services going through that southern section too, like a gas pipeline and those sort of things, sewer systems, all those kind of uh, utility sort of services that uh, were neighbouring and abutting the, the park. Tony's ability, uh, and I guess too that uh, organisations had confidence in the Friends of Westgate Park, you know, that they were going to be communicating their interests or their intentions in a positive way or respectful way rather than clumsily and perhaps being disparaging, you know, in a public space. Tony's ability to uh, to win the confidence of uh, different corporations is really key to them being constructive in terms of how they related to the park. So uh, Westgate Park now was, became ex- an extended area, particularly along that southern area, the abutting the web dock area. It's now regarded as an important sort of buffer to that industrial precinct, you know, so uh, uh, in that sense it's been a fantastic outcome. And all the work that Tony did at Westgate is all as a volunteer? That's right. His retirement, he uh, just worked quite (laughs) tirelessly, really, uh, and fantastic, and not only at Westgate, but also at the Echo Fan, you know, so uh, after a day down at the park, it would be... Uh, Tony would turn up at, uh, for an evening meeting, a committee meeting at Port Phillip Echo Centre and also in his role as secretary. He didn't just turn up for meetings, he actually took the minutes and made sure that all of those communications were attended to. Contributed to several subcommittees, you know, like he had an employment subcommittee, for example, uh, that needed to um, make sure that all uh, the right boxes were ticked in terms of the detail of uh, HR requirements and there was a relationship between organisation and staff. Great attention to governance uh, as well as the practical efforts of spreading mulch and getting plants in the ground. Did he also act as a mentor for some of the volunteers or the other members of West Cape Park? Oh, there's no question about that. Uh, I think, as I mentioned before, one of Tony's, apart from his organisational capacity, is just his interpersonal skills. I always recall that just as uh, an aside that uh, Tony would always ask people by their name. He wouldn't just say, oh, how are you? He would say, and how's, how's Neil? Or, you know, so, and so that personal touch 
that uh, an indication that uh, uh, you weren't just some, another of the volunteers or a number, you know, um, but you actually were a real person and uh, a subtle touch. But I think that has had an influence in making people feel that they were valued and being acknowledged as real people. And uh, that would encourage them to contribute more, you know, so and perhaps um, invest a bit more t- time in developing particular skills because, uh, yeah, they just saw that there, were, there was a positive outcome for them. And I think it showed with the number and variation of the tributes that were paid to him on the day of his commemoration, the variety of people whose lives he touched. Friends of Westgate had several worked for the doll groups down there, for example, uh, and all of the people that participated in them, many of them of different age groups too, and genders, all of them just were really comfortable uh, with Tony and happy to be there and, uh, you know, really positive about what they were doing. Yeah, again, that was really just, I think that Tony's um, interpersonal skills uh, were really key to that. Is there going to be a, a plaque? arrested for him? There may be, Jan, but I'm not aware of uh, any plans for one at this stage, but certainly, uh, you know, anybody who knows Tony, uh, Westgate Park is, is one giant plug. <laughs> so, but, yeah, he certainly does deserve uh, wider public recognition. Big shoes to follow. Yes, that's right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm sure that there will be people though that have um, been mentored by Tony and uh, who will um, definitely uh, take up the challenge. I guess one of the key things is that uh, he has provided a, a very stable platform for people to um, to work on. A lot of the uncertainties and the respect is there, but, you know, and lots of um, things have been processes and governance have been put in place as well as just the profile of the the Friends Group and the Billy Nursery uh, are well established now, so uh, that makes it easier for people to actually get on with doing creative and productive things. Well, finally, Neil, a personal tribute to Tony from you. I'd have to say that, you know, it's been a great pleasure and a privilege for me to uh, have met Tony and to to work with him. It's really hard to, to measure just the extent that he's um, provided a positive influence on my life, I can't really say that I could hope to meet a better bloke. A tribute to Tony Flew from Neil Blake from the Port Phillip Eco Centre. Three C R Community Radio, eight five five AM. Hi, Man's here from the Japarong Embassy. On October the 26th, after two and a half years of defending sacred women's country, the embassy, family, friends and supporters were forcibly removed from country by Victoria Police. The Andrews State Government, alongside Major Roads Projects Victoria, have begun their violent attack to desecrate the sovereign lands of the Japarong to make way for the duplication of the Western Highway between Buangal and Ararat. There are many old growth trees, one significant tree in particular, a 350-year-old yellow box gum, 
the directions tree. She's a placenta tree who holds the DNA of the Japarong ancestors. She was felled by a chainsaw at the hands of a government that is asking for a treaty with its first peoples. The embassy and its frontline protectors are calling out for your help. To find out more, including how to get to the embassy to help defend on the ground, visit the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy's Facebook page. Educate yourself, donate to their chuff campaign, and spread the word. <laughs>